Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, a pleasure to see you. Thank you for being here. And uh, as this is the last time that I shall speak to you at this conference, I would like to um, thank the responsible brethren here for inviting me in the first place. I enjoyed last year, and I enjoyed being with you this year. I've also especially enjoyed being uh, able to share this conference weekend with my good friend and brother Brian Gunning from um, St. Catharines. Now at my advanced years, um, I suspect that this is probably likely to be the last time that I shall be here because you don't, you bring the speakers for two years running, but um, I suppose that's the end of it then. But um, um, I will take back home with me uh, very happy memories of happy fellowship and the sharing together and enjoying of the word of the Lord and seeing this assembly growing and developing and uh, I'm sure pleasing the Lord and I would be my prayer that it would continue to do so. So thank you once again for having me here. Now would you like to turn please to Romans chapter 1. It was my exercise to um, uh, share Romans chapter 1 with you during this conference time. And uh, here now for my last message, I have the task of still giving uh, an exposition of Romans chapter 1 and also preaching the gospel from Romans chapter 1. But I suspect Romans chapter 1 is one of the best places to preach the gospel from. So chapter 1, Romans, and for today we will start to read at verse number 13. Romans chapter 1. And verse number 13. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them. I'm sure the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word here this morning. Now we have spent our time, the previous three messages, trying to uh, develop uh, the truth of the message of the gospel and uh, what Paul had to say about it from the first 12 or 13 verses of this chapter. And so today I want to draw your attention to the preaching of the gospel, Paul's pride in the gospel message and what his ambition was in sharing it with the believers that were gathered in Rome. Now, just a very brief mention by way of connection to what we were talking about before. In verse number 13, uh, the Apostle Paul says, Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. 
It's a sort of little phrase that he liked. And I think he uses it five times in the New Testament, I would not have you ignorant brethren. Some people back at home, when they wish to be a little bit cynical about the brethren, say, I would not have you ignorant brethren. Um, <laughs> but um, that's not quite the way it is um, meant to be read. Uh, I would not have you ignorant. Of course, our word ignorant, we know what that means, but what Paul was really saying was, I don't want you to be in a position where you don't know. Uh, if you're in a, in a situation, uh, in some company or other, and there are different things going on, and it seems everybody else knows, but you don't know, you feel a bit embarrassed, and you don't know what to do, and you don't know what to say, or what you should be doing next. In other words, you're in ignorance of the plan for that particular gathering. Now, Paul was concerned and anxious that the believers to whom he was writing in Rome would not be ignorant of a particular fact. And what he wanted them not to be ignorant of was that oftentimes he had purposed to come and visit them. We had noticed before, had we not, that although he was the apostle to the Gentiles, he had completely failed to visit the center of Gentile power, that is, the city of Rome, where the emperor was located and where all the power of the empire was located, whether it be economic power, military power, political power, or whatever power you might like. Even where the emperor, who spoke of himself as being God, was located. The heart of the empire, the seat of power, and yet Paul, the messenger, the apostle to the Gentiles, had failed to show up. There were some, I told you before, who would be critical of that, but he says, now look, I don't want you to be unaware of this fact, that there were many times in the past that I wanted to come to you, but I was hindered in so doing. I was let hitherto, is a lovely old English language way of saying, I wasn't able to do it, I was stopped, something happened. He uses that phrase about being let, in other words, hindered, on two other occasions as well. Uh, indeed, on three other occasions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he wasn't able to come to Corinth, and the reason that time was he wanted to spare the saints. In other words, when he came, he was going to say some very difficult things to them about their lack of discipline in the things of the Lord. And so he was not able to come uh, at that time, or he didn't come because he wanted to spare the saints. Again, he wasn't able to go back to Thessalonica when perhaps he felt that he should. And the reason he didn't go back to Thessalonica when he felt compelled to do so was, he said, Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. And thirdly, in Romans chapter 15, the reason he gives for not coming to Rome so far was that there was already gospel being preached in Rome. There was already believers in Rome that had nothing to do with him or his service. And Paul's compulsion was, his passion was, to preach the gospel where Christ was not yet named. Therefore, Rome didn't fit into that schedule of thinking at that time. But now, of course, he does want to come because he's hoping to go from Rome to take the gospel to where Christ is not yet named in Spain so that there might be a mighty work of God in Spain at that time. We're unaware as to whether he ever got to Spain, but um, I suspect he didn't. 
but uh, here now in verse 13, he's explaining why he hasn't showed up so far. And uh, of course, it's a bit different today. The reason I haven't showed up in the past, at least before last year, the reason I haven't showed up at Claremont was simply because nobody asked me. Um, very often you meet, you meet brethren who say to you, well, you know, you must come to us sometimes and speak. And I always say, well, if you ask me, I will. Um, it's easy to say you would like somebody to come and then not do anything about it. But here now Paul is saying, look, I wanted to come. I was desperate to come. You hadn't even asked me to come, but I wanted to come. But I was let. I was hindered hitherto. Now he tells them why he would like to come. Not only to meet them, to value their fellowship, to have their support in taking the gospel message to Spain, but he says at the end of verse 13, I would love to come to you that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. Now, what he's saying here is, the reason that I want to come to Rome is that there might be fruitfulness as a result of my visit. I like the way he says at the end of, verse, of the verse, even as among other Gentiles. In fact, what he's really saying, the word other here, it means, um, uh, the, the word other, English language is um, a wonderful language, of course, but it's a bit limited in ways. For example, if I were to say to you, I'm going to get another car, uh, you wouldn't know whether I meant another car of the same type I already have, or another car of a different kind. You wouldn't know that if I just said I'm going to get another car. You wouldn't know that. The English language doesn't help you with that. But the Greek language does help you with that because it is two different Greek words for our English word other. And of course, the classic text that uses both these words is in Galatians, where the Apostle Paul writes, he says, I am, <clears throat> I am shocked, he said, that you are removed unto another gospel, another gospel of a different kind, which is not a gospel of the same kind. So he uses those two here. Now, I haven't explained, <coughs> taken time to explain that to you. The word other doesn't mean either of those two things. It simply means the rest, the rest. It's the same as the word is used in Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, that we sorrow not even as others, the rest that have no hope. And so here now Paul is saying, I have had fruit among virtually all the rest of the Gentile nations in the Roman Empire. I would love to see fruit from my visit to Rome. I long to see fruit among you, even as among other, the rest of the Gentiles in the countries of the Roman Empire that I have visited. And so he begins to explain now why he desperately wants to come. Verse number 14. He says, I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Now, it has been pointed out <coughs> that there are three little phrases that he uses here <coughs> that are rather important. Verse 14, I am a debtor. Uh, verse number 15, I am ready. Verse number 16, I am not ashamed. And so it is around these three phrases that we shall spend a little bit of time just now. Says the Apostle Paul, I am a debtor. Now the people that he feels he is in debt to, he describes as follows, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. 
Now, some people today imagine that it might be a jolly good thing to take the message of the gospel to the barbarians. Now, who on earth are the barbarians? There's actually a rugby team in London, UK called the Barbarians. I should hesitate to play rugby against them because they sound rather wild and violent. But the word barbarians indicates the uncivilized world. And of course, Paul did attempt to take the gospel to the uncivilized world. And we have in our day and generation, many men and women for whom we thank the Lord that took the gospel to uncivilized nations abroad, to places like Central Africa and India, who of course are now becoming civilized, but 50, 60, 100 years ago, they were not in that position. And so it is, Paul says, I feel I have a debt to be, as you and I would describe, as a missionary, to take the gospel to lands that are uncivilized. Now, that is a good thing. We would say, well, that, that's, that's good, that's nice, well done. And of course, among Brethren Circles, we are grateful for one of the first ever missionaries from Brethren Circles, Fred Stanley Arnott, who took the gospel abroad for one of the first times and did so with great success. But here now, people are inclined to say today, we, where are we? We're in civilized America. And whereabouts in America are we? Well, we're in California, of all lovely places to be. And where in California are we? We're in Claremont, the seat of learning um, in, in this part of California. Somebody spoke to me yesterday and asked me, had I ever been to a city called Armagh in Northern Ireland? Well, I have been, uh, but Armagh is known, maybe a little bit like Claremont, Armagh is known as the city of saints and scholars. So I don't know whether that's an adequate description of Claremont or not, but it'll do for today. So what he's saying here is now, I want to take the gospel to uncivilized folks and to uncivilized countries. And almost everybody in Claremont today would say that is a good idea. Why not? They need it, don't they? Of course they do. They're into witchcraft. They're into idol worship. They're into all these things. They know nothing. Let's take the gospel to them. Well, as I say, we thank God, and they would thank God, too, for men and women who did just that. But Paul says here that he not only wants to take the gospel to the barbarians, but he says in verse number 13, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians. Now, the Greeks are representative of the civilized world. Well, of course, if you want to go back into old civilizations, You've got Rome, and you've got Greece. And, of course, the Greeks looked upon themselves as being smarter than anybody else, being more educated than anybody else, living in a higher plane than anybody else. They were rich. They were wealthy. They, were, they had all these things that life could give them. But Paul says, listen to what he says. He says, I am a debtor. I want to take this message to the Greeks to the civilized people, or people who think they're civilized. Because let me tell you that the Greeks were not really civilized. And we would, we would like to think, would we not, that, the, that America was a civilized country. Well, you think of some of the things that go on in America today. Los Angeles, everybody, everywhere, 
is aware of the difficulties of life in Los Angeles. Gangs, theft, murder. Think about New York, the same thing. Civilized country, I ask you. One time in my employment, I was um, <clears throat> the CEO of a printing company, a book printing company in Northern Ireland. It was during the time Northern Ireland was going through lots of difficulties. People were being killed and murdered all the time. I came on a business trip to New York. I went in to see one particular man who was thinking of having some of his books printed in Northern Ireland at our plant. And he said to me, you know, Roy, he said, I don't know that we should do that. I said, well, why not? He said, well, because, you know, look at what's happening, what's going on. People are being murdered every day. Now, fortunately, just before I went in to see him, I had read some statistics that there would have been more people murdered in New York that weekend than there would be in the whole of the year in Northern Ireland. I didn't hesitate to tell him that. I still didn't get the books. But there we are. So, let me say to you today that the gospel is unquestionably for uncivilized people. But the message of the gospel is needed in countries like America and Canada and the United Kingdom because the civilized people so-called need the message of the gospel. And I say that should Jesus Christ come this year as he did the first time, not the second time, but as he came the first time, to Israel if he came now to California. What would the civilized folks of California do? They'd kill him. Said Paul, I feel a great debt to take the message of the gospel to the Greeks and to the barbarians. And then he adds, both to the wise and to the unwise. Perhaps to the wise he means to the cultured people people who are into academia and philosophy and to the uncultured who are into none of these things. It brings to my mind this, that the message of the gospel which we proclaim in this place today is a message that's for everybody. It is a message that needs to be heard by everybody. It is a message that can change the lives of everybody and their destiny too. And so if you should be here today, I'm not accusing you of either being civilized or uncivilized. I'm not accusing you of being cultured or uncultured. I'm simply trying to point out to you that you as an individual need to hear the message of the gospel because it would be of enormous benefit in your life and it will save your soul and guarantee you a place in heaven when you die. Not if you die, but when you die. And so it is, he says, now, this is what I'm a debtor. I, a debtor is somebody who owes somebody else something. Now, thankfully, I don't owe you as a company any money. Because if you've come along to collect it, you're in for a big disappointment. But I do owe you something. I have a debt before I leave this city of Claremont to make sure that everybody to whom I speak hears the gospel. 
and I intend today to pay that debt to the best of my ability in full so that you will never be able to say, Roy Hill came to Claremont, spent a whole weekend there, and never explained to me that I needed to be saved. You'll not be able to say that because I tell you now that you do, like I once did, need to be saved. So says Paul in verse number 15, I have a debt to pay. It is a debt that I need to pay to nations civilized and uncivilized. It is a debt that I need to pay to nations cultured and uncultured. It is a debt that I need to pay to every individual with whom I come in contact. So, he says in verse number 15, as much as in me is, that is to the best of my ability, to the best of my ability, I am ready to preach the gospel. Ah, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To be ready, to be ready. You know, sometimes it used to be we have five children and uh, innumerable grandchildren, but um, it used to be when we were trying to get the five children out to maybe to a meeting on a Sunday or to go to school during the week, the cry would be, are you ready yet? Are you ready? Mostly they weren't. But it is a good thing when that call comes, are you ready? It's a good thing to be ready. Now, says Paul, I am ready. I'm set. I am ready. What to do, Paul? To preach the gospel, said he. To preach the gospel. On this occasion, to whom? He says, to you that are at Rome also. So it was Paul's ambition to get to the seat of power in the world at that time in his day and preach the gospel to them. Now, why would he want to do that? Well, I mentioned to you that Rome was the seat of power, whether it be financial power, economic power, political power, the emperor's power, military power. All power was in Rome. Now, the meaning of the word Rome, or a meaning of the word Rome, is power. Very appropriate, isn't it? But listen to what is even more appropriate. I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The citizens of Rome thought they knew all that there was to know about power. But, says Paul, the gospel is the power of God. A power which you have only seen but little of in Rome so far. But I believe if I come and preach the gospel to you again in Rome, that the power of God will be evident. I would like to say to you today that I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Claremont also. The gospel, of course, consists, as Paul will tell us later in Romans, it consists of these facts, that Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, came into this world and was born as a babe in a manger at Bethlehem. The gospel consists of this fact, that as Jesus Christ, he lived for a period of 33 and a half years in the country of Israel. It consists of this fact also, 
that after that 33 and a half years had elapsed, he died as a young man in his prime, killed by his fellow countrymen, crucified, nailed alive to a cross, abused, tortured, tormented, dying, and dead. And yet, while I say that, while Peter in his preaching on some occasions blamed the Jews for it, and on other occasions blamed the Romans for it, we also must bear in mind that without his agreement, without his, that is, without the Lord Jesus Christ's acquiescence to what they wanted to do, nobody could kill him. He said these words. He said, no man, no man anywhere takes my life from me. He said, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And I say to you today that there on that hill, lone and gray, in a land far away, he exercised that power and he laid down his life. The world, of course, did their best to help him, didn't they? A hymn writer wrote these words. He said, hark, I hear the dull blow of a hammer swung low. They are nailing my Lord to a tree. And the cross they upraise and the multitude gaze on the blessed lamb of dark Calvary. He exercised his power to lay down his life. And so he died. My Lord, crucified, he died. The gospel tells me that when he died, he died for me. He died for me. It tells me that when he rose again from the dead, which is resurrection being an integral part of the gospel message, it tells me that when he rose again, he rose again from the dead for, from the dead for me. And it tells me, the gospel does, that he has gone back to glory, where he is exalted in the highest place in heaven. <clears throat> when I was a little boy, in my home in the city of Belfast, there hung a text on my bedroom wall. I read it every night, and I read it every day. This is what it said. In peace, let me resign my breath, and thy salvation see. I was a guilty sinner, but Jesus died for me. My dear friend, the message of the gospel is this that Christ has died for your sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. You are now never able to say that nobody told you about the gospel. And if you should appear before the great white throne of judgment, before God in a day yet to come, you will not be able to say, I never heard the gospel. I didn't know. Nobody told me. Roy Hill did not explain. You know. And you know 
what you need to do. As much as in me is, he says, I am ready. You know, it's always good to be ready. Ready for any opportunity, ready to preach the gospel, ready to tell others, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome, the seat of power also. For, says he in verse number 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why would he, why ever would he be ashamed of the gospel? Well, you know, some people are pretty critical of the gospel. They would describe it like this. They'd say, well, the gospel says that when that baby was born in Bethlehem, that he was the son of God. Ridiculous. How could such a thing ever be? Furthermore, that his mother was a virgin when he was born. Stupid idea. And when he died, rightly so, when he died, they say, they say he rose again. Imagine that. And they, not content with that, they go on to say that he's coming back again one day. Did you ever? What nonsense, they say. Perhaps there are some people who are ashamed of the gospel, if it's told like that. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe I'm one of them. Says Paul, I am not ashamed. Of course, you remember that in the Old Testament, there's a device within Hebrew and Greek that enables you, if you want to say something is, for example, very strong, you would say it's not very weak. Rather than saying it's very strong, you'd say it's not very... For example, Abraham is described like this in Genesis 4, verse 19. Abraham, being not weak in faith. It is a way of emphasizing that Abraham was strong in faith. And when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, what he's saying is, I am so proud of this message. This is an amazing message, a wonderful message, a blessed message. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. And if you're proud about something, you want to talk about it. You want other people to know why you have pride in the message of the gospel. Be not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, I say to believers today. But be proud of this message. It's unique. It's special. There's nothing like it in the world. Says Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And why not? It is the power of God, said he, unto salvation. Dunamis is the word for power. And uh, interestingly, although it is not good exegesis, from the um, <coughs> meaning of the word, the Greek word dunamis, we get our English word dynamite. And I know preachers like to say that the gospel is the dynamite of God. Well, as far as I know, dynamite blows everybody away if it goes off, doesn't it? But it's really, he's concentrating... It's not on the dynamite, although in a certain sense it is dynamite. How come? Because it can change things dramatically. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation. I don't bring to you today a message that I say might work for you. I don't bring today to you a message that says... It might be a jolly good idea if you tried it today. I bring to you a message that I know from my own personal experience 
and from the experience of many others that I know too, and from what the Bible tells me, I bring to you a message of power that can change your life and change your destiny. Destiny, Just like that, so that at one moment, you're a sinner on the way to hell, and at the next moment, you're a believer on the way to heaven. The gospel, said he, is the power of God resulting in salvation. But who's it for? Who's it for? It says, verse 16, to everyone that believeth. To everyone that believeth. And he amplifies that by saying, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So this message of the gospel is for everyone. It's therefore for you. Some years ago, there was a young man came along to the service in our gospel hall back in the United Kingdom. He was a young man who had spent quite a bit of his life on drugs and he was alcoholic. He had been in prison and committed crimes of various sorts. And he told us afterwards that that day he sat in the audience just as you are doing today. And the preacher of the gospel on that occasion said this. He said, there is nobody that is too bad or too sinful to be saved. The young fellow said, I couldn't believe that. He said, I thought I'm too bad. Nobody can do anything to help me. But that young man trusted Christ as his savior and discovered in his life the power of God unto salvation. And so to bring this message to you, I've traveled from the United Kingdom to Claremont to bring you this message. To bring you this message today, Jesus Christ traveled from heaven to Calvary to bring you this message and this offer of salvation. Says Paul, in light of such a great message, I am not ashamed. How could I be ashamed? I am not ashamed. I am proud of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Rich, poor, great, small, important, unimportant, sinner, even some people who think they might be saints, the message of the gospel is for them. So he says, for therein, that is, in this gospel message, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. So somehow, this message reveals, unveils, demonstrates, manifests the righteousness of God. What does he mean? The book of Romans is all about this it explains to me how God, as a righteous judge, can say that a guilty sinner is guiltless. How can a guilty sinner be guiltless? He's committed the crime. He's done the sins. How can he be without guilt? 
the gospel explains that God, in justifying the sinner, saving the sinner, that God is doing the right thing and cannot be accused of being unrighteous. Listen to the message of Romans again. The message of Romans is telling me how that God, the righteous judge of all the world, can declare a guilty sinner guiltless, as if he had never sinned at all. That's what the gospel message brings. It is wonderful. It is amazing. And furthermore, how do you get it? The power of the gospel comes into your life. When you believe, as I have said, through faith, that when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he died for you. It is easy to believe that when Jesus died, he died for the whole world. And he did. It is easy to believe that when Jesus died, he died for all the people inside this building today. And he did. It is relatively easy, though perhaps a little bit more difficult to say, that when Jesus died upon the cross, he died for all the people sat in my row. And he did. But it is good to say that when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, he died for me. And he did. Therefore, what must I do to be saved? Asked a man in the New Testament. And the answer of Paul, given to that man, in those dire circumstances in Philippi, was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. What happens if I don't? You're a free individual. You can make your own choice. You can choose if you want Jesus to be part of your life or not. It's up to you. I hope that today I have fulfilled my responsibility. And now that responsibility passes to you. I shall go away, walk out of this place, and apart from next Sunday, likely never be back. But I have paid my debt. I can leave with my head held high because I've told you, I've explained to you, I've asked you to think about it and consider it. I have urged you to take Jesus Christ as your Savior. But what if you don't? Well, if you don't, you don't. What will God do about that? Verse number 18. For the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. If you don't take Christ as your Savior, there's nothing that I can do about that. If you don't take Christ as your Savior, 
there is something that God will do about that. Shall we pray? Our Father, we come to Thee in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We feel in our hearts responsibility. Responsibility to tell folks about the message of the gospel, to tell them of the Lord Jesus, to tell them that having died upon the cross and ascended to heaven, that he is coming back again one day soon, to tell them that the salvation that he provided at Calvary is a salvation for them. Their sins can be forgiven. They can be justified. Their lives can be turned right around. They can have peace and joy in their hearts. A peace that the world can never give them. We remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, My peace I leave with you. Not the peace that the world gives. Because we know that in the world and people who rely on it, there is no peace. But our Father, we thank thee that we can enjoy peace with God and the peace of God in our hearts. And therefore we pray now, especially, particularly, individually, for anyone in this building just now who as yet knows not Christ as their Savior, that even as we pray, that thou would speak to them again. Bid them come to thee. And grant our Father that thou wouldst give them the power to do so. And we know that anyone who has ever come to thee, that thou hast said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. We give thee our thanks. We pray that thou wouldst bless our time of fellowship and the food and refreshment so kindly provided and grant our Father that each of us might reflect on the power of the message of the gospel and not be ashamed to believe it and not be ashamed to tell others that we have done so. We ask these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.